Welcome to episode 43 of Teach Me Tiger. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Vieira's coming over to the dark side. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. know, my number one parenting hack is drinking. It is drinking. That's, so, what, that's what mine is, too. It's a little life hack, also. And a uh, mm, uh, skincare hack. Teach Me Tiger. Welcome to Teach Me Tiger, the podcast where we, yes, Melody, Melody, and, and Liz. That's Liz. That's Liz. <laughs> I'm Melody. Where have, we bring, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, you go ahead. No, you go ahead. Okay, well, have our experty <laughs> or enthusiastic friends come on the show and tell us about stuff. Who's coming on this week, Liz? My friend, Viera. 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 Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, she who, says we can call her anything, actually. We can so. call her anything we want. She's uh, an expert on parenting, and she actually said, I'm an expert on parenting, so she's a real expert, but she's also a really good family photographer and wedding photographer, but she has a background in parenting because she, well, she's a parent, but also she has a PhD in parenting, so that's cool. In science. In science, the science of parenting, not just mm-hmm. like how to, <laughs> I don't even know what a PhD in like teaching people how to parent would be, but she doesn't have that. It's a science thing. Yes. So she's going to be coming on. We're going to be talking about like um, child parent attachment, bed sharing, technology, technology and kids, asshole like children, screen time. Yeah. It's cool. It's a good episode. Cool. Before we get to it, Liz, how was your week? Any week peaks? Oh, yeah. Week peaks. Was it barfing the night before last all night? Oh, uh, yeah. That was Yeah. A week was peak. that your week peak? So That's Melody, a fun one. Melody and I were supposed to record a podcast with some of our friends last night. And Melody and some of our friends recorded the podcast, but I didn't because I had been barfing the whole night before randomly. And I don't know why. Hmm. That was a good one. Um, my week peak was watching two movies back to back last night while nice. sick. Literally, that was the best time I had all week. <laughs> what did you watch? I watched Steel Magnolias. Yes. And then featuring I watched Dolly Parton. Featuring. The- That's a little foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. Featuring the amazing <laughs> Dolly Parton. And I watched Courage Under Fire, which is a great 90s military mystery slash i don't even drama yeah with nice. denzel washington denzel Matt damon and meg ryan i have a fun fact about Lou denzel washington what do you know that he has a really fucked up pinky finger i've heard that that one of his pinky fingers is like it's, bent in the opposite direction it was like a, he jammed it playing basketball i believe if i remember but how do we correctly. never see it they just keep it on the dl I don't know if he holds his hand down. Because I'm or- pretty sure that I saw his hands in the movie last night. Both of them. I don't know, Liz. I don't know. But if you look on the internet, which, as we know, we bring it up every time. It never lies. It's all truth, only truth, all the time on the internet. people Photoshop that. Nope. Not on the internet. They can't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, interesting. I have heard that myth, and I forgot to look for it last night. And actually, on that note, mm-hmm. what's her name? The one from the Transformers movies? Megan. Megan. Hot one. Yeah, I know you're talking about. You know, the hot Megan? Hot, yeah. hot Megan. Hot Megan. That's her name. Hot Megan. She has a thing where her um, thumbs look like toes. 
Oh, yeah. She has weird thumbs. I'm sure I showed you because I'm like, these are beautiful people with things that are weird. (laughs) 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 Denzel Washington's a beautiful man. He is. Mm -hmm. And she's a beautiful lady. Mm -hmm. Denzel Washington's really good at playing drunk. Is he's, he? he's drunk a bit in this movie in Courage Under Fire because he's a, a veteran with some PTSD. Right. And in another movie, a more recent movie called Flight, he's also dealing with alcoholism mm-hmm. and he does a great job in both films being drunk. Like it's so it's believable. Interesting. <laughs> I wonder what he's like in real life. Do you think he's like a sort of straight lace kind of guy? I don't know. I like to think he likes to cut loose every once in a while, but I'd hate to think he has a substance abuse problem. Yeah. Denzel, how are you doing? You okay there, bud? Give us a call. <laughs> He'll call definitely. <laughs> I mean, send us an email. It's a Gmail address, teach me tiger podcast. <laughs> we don't have a phone number anymore. No, we don't. Melody disconnected it. How about you? How about your week peaks? Anything? You know what? See, I had a good week peak like last night when I recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was last night and you used it. It was last up. night and I used it up. But truthfully, my week peak from last night to today was last night. I had such a fun time being in a hotel with my girlfriends and Kat and Nikki and well, actually Kat and Nikki and I weren't roommates together, but I was roommates with Kat for a long time and then roommates with Nikki for a long time. And we were all together and it was just really nice without kids, without partners. It was just like old times. That's nice. I'm so sad. I missed it. Made me feel young again. And then I went to a thrift store and you know what? The woman ringing me through was like, do you qualify for any of our discounts? Are you a student? Are you in the military? And I was like, you think I'm a student? (laughs) (laughs) That felt good. Is that your week peak? Also, someone told me, and this is like ridiculous how thrilled I was. So I started a job. I've talked about it a couple of times, whatever. But she was like, you know, we need to actually put you in the system properly. What's your birth year? And I told her it's 1996. Just (laughs) 1981. And she was like, Oh, wow. I definitely thought you weren't any older than 34 or 35. Nice. I mean, you're, 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 I'm barely older than 35. Yeah. You're 38. Like, come on. (laughs) But I was unreasonably chuffed by that also. I get carded sometimes still. Oh yeah. Baby face. It's because I'm fat. Fat people look young. No, you have like big, beautiful eyes. Remember what woman, what did that woman tell you? Oh, was? I had oh a woman, please I, tell the story I on a, the podcast. I had a woman tell me once that I looked, her baby was looking at me and, um, <laughs> she said, Oh, he, he likes looking at you because you look like a baby. And I said, you mean that I look young? And she said, no, no. Cause you look like a baby. You literally look, you look like, like a baby. baby. And I just looked at her and she's like, yeah, you look like a baby, like an infant. Yeah. Well, you know what it is, Liz, you have these big, beautiful, striking blue eyes. And like a little nose. You got a cute little face. Yeah. Cute little face, Liz. Cute little face. But also the pudginess makes people look younger, I think. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I could be wrong. But as you get older, it's good to be a little bit chubby because then it holds up your face. Um, It's true. My mother looks, you know, my mother's got a little bit of chub behind her face. Can I tell you a quick other week peek? Yeah. Although it's sort of, maybe it's a little mean, but somehow the topic of Maggie Gyllenhaal came up. Mm Mm-hmm. And Sarah Wright, former co-host, told me that Greg calls her Saggy Gyllenhaal. <laughs> and I laughed and laughed. It's just really mean. Because she doesn't wear bras in movies. Yeah. <laughs> and and not that she's like wrinkly, but her face is just kind of like... She's got a bit of a hangdog thing happening there. Yeah. 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 Anyway, I laughed. Um, it was that's, mean. That's terrible. I'm a funny. terrible person. Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's amusing. Yeah. Like, I get it. I totally get it. She's got like 1920s, like downturned eyes. Yes. Kind yes. Of. Yes. Yeah. 
Very good actress. Yeah, she's great. I love her. Yeah. I love you, Maggie. <laughs> love you, Maggie. <laughs> Please listen to our podcast. Share it with your friends. <laughs> <laughs> Should we get to the show? Yeah. Let's All do right. it. <laughs> okay. So I was thinking you could intro Viara. Viara? 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 Viara. Viara. Like Tiara. Yeah, I'm sorry. I think I said Viera by accident. Tiara, would it be? Okay, I say Viera. It's because you're a princess. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's actually Viera. So, like, no matter what you call me, I don't care. Right. Because it's not Viera. <laughs> like, actually, the people that know me call me Verche, so it's like totally different from my actual name. Do you have like an anglicized nickname? Viera. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just mean like Vi dog, Vi or something. No, no V. Like people, some people. What call does me Fritz v. call you? Viera. Troglodyte. Yeah, he is. <laughs> Hasn't even taken the time to learn how to say her name in Bulgarian. What kind no, but- of partner of 22 years is he? Do you yeah. have a lot of Bulgarian friends here? No. No. That's a no? She shook her head. No, I don't. Like She sighed and shook her head disappointedly. <laughs> no, like I pick up friends here and there who are Bulgarian. Like I just made a friend with a Bulgarian from Vancouver who's a craftsperson. She makes these mm. amazing like wood engravings. No. There's not a lot of Bulgarians in Kingston. Right. Oh. Are there any? You're the only mm-hmm. one I know. You're the no, only there are, one. There are, but not a lot. Well, this is Viara, the way the loser Canadians say it. <laughs> uh, say your last name. Say your whole name. Viara Maleva. It's actually Maleva. The but, accent is on the first syllable. Didn't I kind of say that? No. You mm-hmm. said it on the second, like Mileva. Oh. But it's Mileva. Viara Mileva? I've known Viara for almost four years, and this is the first time we're having this conversation. <laughs> That's how, yeah. It doesn't really you know, all of the dirty laundry gets aired out on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. So Viera Mileva is here today with us. <laughs> Viera Mileva? Yes. There you go. How do you know her? How do you guys know each other? We know each other because Viera is a photographer, and because she's friendly and outgoing. <laughs> She emailed every photographer in Kingston and asked them to go for coffee with her. And I was the only one who said yes. Really? I can't remember what it was. It I was, stood out in some I did. Way. I, yeah. So I did email message a few people. I don't think it was like every photographer in Kingston. Um, cause I just don't have that kind of discipline, <laughs> but it was a lot of people. And yeah, you were one of the few who like actually upheld the promise to go for coffee. So was this like a networking thing? Were you looking for people to work with? What was, what were you, why were you doing that? Because I have this incessant need to have a community and create a community and like. So Yara was a scientist and we're going to talk about what she was a scientist for. And then she decided to become a photographer and that's what she is now. So she was trying to find other photographers to be friends with, to build a community. Yeah. Cool. And now you have one. Yeah. And I also was pretty new to Kingston still. Yeah. Cause that was in 2016. Mm. Yep. So almost four years ago. Mm Mm-hmm. But now you have other photographer people that you're friends with and do things like talk about photographies. <laughs> yeah, photographies. You're going to a conference in Austin in like yeah. a couple months mm-hmm. with a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. Also, regarding photography, mm-hmm. I was talking to Viara when she came in about the fact that she's been winning all of these awards lately. I know, right? It's amazing. Yeah. So good job. Thanks. So Viera is a <laughs> glass half empty kind of person. And so she's like, they were all right. They were fine. I feel like it's among the easier awards to awards win. Awards to win. So which one do you want to win? I want to win a fearless one, but I feel like you have to be really out there with the compositions. Anyway, let's, let's talk about parenting. Let's talk about <laughs> so, mothering. So, so, so Viera, before she became a photographer, did a PhD in 
like what exactly what discipline is your phd in that's a really good question that nobody can you don't have like a phd in biology i don't because i actually belong to the institute of medical science at U of T, which is a cross-disciplinary department that doesn't actually have any faculty that belong to that department so it's one of those like cross-appointed they're all cross-appointed so my i had two supervisors one was a psychologist the other was a geneticist but on paper it says phd in medical science which means absolutely nothing because i studied nothing to do with medicine but you have a phd i'm impressred very (laughs) experty but basically it was in like parenting and you studied co-sleeping and that sort of thing so the title of my thesis was what mothers say, think, and do. And then the the longer title is like the gene environment associations with maternal behavior. So how their genes and their early experiences with their own parents might have affected the way they parent their kids. Oh. So that was my PhD. Later, I started studying bed sharing and all that. Oh, like in your postdoc and stuff. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And as a uh, through, because you studied parenting and jeans and co-sleeping and that sort of thing. Even though you do tons of wedding photography and that's kind of like one of your main gigs, you also do a ton of family photography because you like families. Yes. And yep. you, you have a family. Yeah, I have a family and I photograph families now. Basically, I, I think that everything converges. I'm like convinced that every single person, if given free reign mm-hmm. to find their voice, they converge on what they're truly meant to be doing or like what they want to say. And I feel like in photography, I've been kind of building up to understanding what it is I do and why it is that I do what I do and why I'm so like, I hate posing people. And I feel really uncomfortable posing people and really cringy telling people what to do. And I always thought it was because I was on the introverted side or or shy side. And it's not even that I just don't like posing people because I feel like it inherently feels disingenuous, like you're altering reality and you're in a sense lying. And I'm like, there's something about presenting a mistruth in, in posing someone or altering the circumstances. So everything I do pretty much is like totally candid, if you will. I will. <laughs> and I've realized that the reason that I, it, it's, it's more than just not wanting to like present something fake, but it's about like, I want people to see the reality and love it as much as they love posed things. So I want people to really realize that there's so much beauty in the unposed, specifically parents who are really, really hard on themselves, especially mothers feel like they're failing like many times in their parenting journey. Mm -hmm. You always feel like you're not doing enough at any given moment. You could be doing more. Basically, you have this internal monologue that runs through your head that's like, just a cascade of self-shame and guilt. There's this amazing checklist that you're never quite meeting up to of what like a perfect mom should be. And I want people through my photographs to see themselves as more than adequate, like as just the amazing people that they are. And they're giving so much like, I don't think anybody's done the science on this or studies on this, but if you actually tally like how many hours of a mother's life are spent in in rearing her children, like as a function of how many free hours she has, I think it's far more now or how many times she thinks about her children, how many decisions she has to make about her children compared with someone from our ancestry, like an early human, or even like a few hundred years ago. Like I think now we're so overburdened with choices for our kids and decisions and responsibilities. And we don't give ourselves any credit for that. So I think through taking photographs in a documentary way, I think I can show parents that actually look how much you're doing already. You don't have to constantly bash yourself. It's interesting that that ties back into your scientific background. Yep. So before we keep talking, we're going to do icebreakers. Yeah. You want to reach into my box? Yes. Are you ready, ready. to ready. lube up that hand and reach into my big fancy <laughs> box? 
Roll up your sleeves, pull up your socks, reach on into Melody's box. Icebreakers. Viara Milova, would you rather have no fingers or no elbows? I mean, no or- elbows sounds like no arm. Let's say no. I'm thinking no, like you can't. Like, yeah, you it's can't just stri- a straight, straight arm. Can I change the question a little? Okay, because you need fingers, right? Unless you, it meant you only had a thumb. What if it's no opposable thumbs or no elbows? No joint. No ability to bend your arm. Yes. Okay. Riddle me. Um, opposable thumb, because I'm pretty sure my finger could act as an opposable thumb. Okay. And like you need, I would need to like be able to reach my mouth. Like, oh yeah, good eating call. is good pretty call. important to me. Me too. I'm imagining you now eating with no. You can't do. Uh-huh. Oh, you'd have, <laughs> I'd have to like modify like a, a big spoon sort of situation. <laughs> yeah. You know, actually, I changed my mind. Me- eating is not important to me, and I eat like a bird, and I don't even like food. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, who needs food anyway? <laughs> That's what straws are for. Just have liquid food. Uh, I vote the exact same as Viera because that makes total sense. And for the same reason. Yeah. What about you? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I think I might just go against the grain and say the opposite because I've seen some really impressive like foot paintings. Oh, and mouth paintings. People who paint with their mouth. I was, when I was a teenager, I was at my friend's mom's house. And she had a calendar of like foot and mouth paintings. And I was like, why the hell would anyone want to paint with their feet or their mouth? Like, why? And she's like, because they don't have hands. (laughs) (laughs) They don't have arms. Or arms. Because if they don't have hands, they could have a paintbrush like strapped to their wrist. Right. And just paint like that. But they don't have any arms. Right. Yeah. There's a blind artist in Scotland who paints landscape paintings. Huh, that's really fucking cool it is i think he lost his sight though like oh so he 20 years ago or something so, so he, he did have vision at one point i think he did and then he just lost it completely over time can i ask an off-the-cuff icebreaker instead yeah. of um pulling another one out of the box would you rather go blind or go deaf go deaf for sure deaf for sure yeah, yeah me too no i worry about going blind all the time i yeah i had a little bit of a scare at one point because the pressure in my eyes was sort of high and there was like some problem in my visual field test where I wasn't seeing quite enough in my peripheral. And until the next appointment, I was like, I was kind of a mess. Yeah. Yeah. Also, because I'm an artist and I yeah. I kind of depend on that outlet for personal fulfillment. If I'm mm-hmm. not making art, I feel poorly about myself because it's such a strong part of my identity. Yeah. No, on well, on think- the other hand, I think it's like one of those things where for someone who has always had their sight, like it's really hard for us to imagine, but then the blind community would be like, you guys are just being shitheads right now. Right. Because well, maybe not. We are have we fully functional lives. And not shitheads. Like blindest. Crea- crea- yeah. We can be just as creative as you can. You're just being like ableist or whatever. Right. I mean, I don't think I'm being ableist when I say I don't want to lose my sight. If I lost my sight, it wouldn't be like, well, I'm less, I'm a less complete person now. I wouldn't think that. I just don't want to lose my sight for the yeah. time. Why being. not? Because I want it. <laughs> but why? I don't need to engage in this with you. <laughs> Viera lives in fear of having these conversations on the internet, right? Or like... No, I'm just of- like extremely... Like I have a... I'm like the canary in the in the mine. I just want to make sure people aren't hurt by anything that I say, whether I intend to hurt them or not. And so I'm becoming more aware myself of like all these conversations that seemed appropriate. Like even watching TV, like... You know, the breakfast club we put it on the other day with oh, Fritz. Yeah. He like oh, pull out, like offensive. goes up her skirt at one. Like he's a freaking creep. 
Which one? The, the, the um, jockey dude? Oh, Emilio, Emilio Estevez. It was like my first time watching this and I fell asleep halfway through. So I wasn't Classic like Piera. super engaged, but I was just appalled at the level of like sexual aggressorship that was present and it was totally normalized. And she just kept like, like trying to mm-hmm. get him to go away and he wouldn't. But then eventually, I think eventually she kind of gives being, in. Yeah. Does yeah. she? I don't know. Is that how it ends? Like, did they hook up? I totally fell asleep. Uh, so I have no idea. No, they don't hook up, but she's like, Oh, he's a nice guy. Whatever. Yeah. He has, he's damaged, which is I totally. Molly Ringwald that he's yes. Yeah. She hooks up with the weirdo at the end, doesn't she? Oh, yeah, she does. Which weirdo? And, and Emilio Estevez Dark hooks up guy. with uh, Ali Sheedy. My favorite part of that movie, I don't know if you saw it or if you fell asleep first, but where okay. Ali Sheedy draws a picture of like a snowscape sort of thing and then she scratches yes! her dandruff from was her early head. on. <laughs> I was like, so that's the other thing. I didn't understand if that movie was supposed to be a comedy or like a, a horror, like noir. Like it was a very confusing atmosphere. Like it yeah. felt really, really dark. But I think it's a lot of these things were because we don't put up with this kind of stuff anymore. We don't put up with like a guy like looking up your skirt, mm-hmm. like, or trying to put his face in between your legs when you're not allowing him to like, hello. But all that stuff that was like, ha ha ha, isn't this funny? Boys mm-hmm. will be boys kind of shit. Anyway, so like I'm conscious our understanding of like just what's normal in our language changes. So even like saying like, I don't know. I don't think that blind people live unfulfilled lives. I just You're don't. just like Emilio Liz. I just don't. <laughs> <laughs> just- I just don't want to be blind. But, you know, if I happen to go blind, I feel like I could power through we'll and, make it work. and have a good life. Yeah. And, you know, JM has quoted me this, some study or something that he had heard that people who have really terrible injuries or accidents where they like lose a limb or they become paralyzed, they think like it will destroy their lives. But then a year later, they come back to them and they'll say, how are you doing? And they're like, actually, I'm fine. Like their their mean happiness is basically the same. They, you right. know, they found the same with people who moved to California. And I just don't believe that. Oh, they moved to California. I think they'll be so much happier. And they are at first. And then it the whole state's on fire. Why the fuck do you want to move there? I just, Warm. just she is a cold person. Like, you're cold all the time. Yeah. It's because my grandmother dressed me in very warm clothes and socks, many layers when I was a kid, all the time. I wasn't allowed to get cold. In a Mediterranean the, country, yeah. essentially. Well, no, we have a winter. It goes down to minus 20 sometimes. Oh, really? I had no so, idea. Yeah. In my brief visits to California, not to Northern California, that's totally different, but like the Los Angeles area... I felt like there's such a different culture around beauty and like everyone was so skinny and everything. Like I went into a agent provocateur. Do you know that place? It's like no. very expensive, fancy lingerie. And my friend Heidi was like, I love this stuff. Let's go in. And as soon as we walked in, the person was like, no, oh, you're not from around here, are you? And we're like, no, <laughs> because we just did not fit in you just in like Los Angeles. People. Yeah. I found that off putting. Mm-hmm. Everything's, quite polished there in my short experience a long time ago more fringe experience so i think that helps Mm -hmm. because when you're like because we did like a skateboard tour a skateboard skate park tour and like skateboarders even in california are still like it's way more mainstream than it is here but it's still kind of a fringe community and also we did a very like rural through the desert like it was a very kind of it was a nature kind of experience Mm -hmm. and then the urban experiences we had were very like niche so right. I, it wasn't like i wasn't frequenting like laundry i don't frequent laundry places That's so here, weird. So, yeah. i didn't have that experience at all there were some interesting people in venice beach like yeah i mean i take it back i guess i'm just thinking specifically about <laughs> los like, angeles los angeles it's like a weird beverly place. hills <laughs> yeah like which isn't even all of los angeles i know that it's a huge city there are all mm-hmm. different parts but like los angeles- i didn't love la we stayed I in manhattan beach and i was just like 
in awe of like, I walked to get coffee one morning and everybody else was still asleep. So I walked down to the boardwalk in Manhattan Beach and the coffee places. And I was just walking through these like multi-million dollar mansions. And it wasn't like one or two. It was like the entire Manhattan Beach. Like the mean price of a house there is like between one and two million. And I saw a lot of little kids toys outside. So like parents very much like me with smaller kids, but like, you know, they're living in these. And, and it's not like just one or two. It's like hundreds of thousands of people. Right. who are like in their early 30s or late 20s with young children are somehow magically affording these multi-million dollar houses. And that's what I couldn't understand. But I don't know. I didn't feel... If I, I had more, more like, if I had more expensive stuff in my life in general, maybe I would go there and be like, yeah, I could live here. But I go there and I'm just like, everything is out of my price range. This yeah. isn't me. I'm so poor. <laughs> yeah. I, when I went to California, I didn't go to LA. I was only in like small towns the only mm. place we did go to that was fancy and we only had lunch there and we left was palm springs and palm springs is pretty fancy but then as soon as you drive out of palm springs you're just in the desert and there are like shacks with window ac shoved into the windows yeah. it's like either super rich or poor desert dwellers and you're like what the fuck is this state <laughs> it's weird i know but that's what i love about it it's so not that people live in poverty the, the feel of the desert like just driving through it there's something like even when i see photos now or see a scene in the movie where there's just like the yucca yucca plants the yuc- just there's something Joshua about it trees. i feel like i just it oh it's beautiful me. i don't know yeah, yeah. it's super yeah, beautiful for sure. it's, i agree it's, it's more than that though i don't even like you just, I can't describe it. It's just like you, you want to feel there. it. Yeah, I just yearn. Be yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to say that I'm not like denigrating to use a big fancy word that Liz used recently in front of me. And so now <laughs> I'm not denigrating California. No, I love it. Um, I think it's I cool. actually I'd love, love to go California. Back. There's like a million, and we have like one listener in California at least. Shout oh. out to Sarah. Hey, hey Sarah. Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Sarah. Do you live in Palm Springs? I don't remember where she lives. We sent her a bumper sticker. Oh, nice. Can we visit? Um, can we visit? Can we stay? Um, so can we come over? The only reason I said, why would you want to live there? It's on fire is because it seems risky to live there. Right. Like, and that's one of, of the big reasons why even before the fires, it was the earthquakes because they're still waiting for the big one. And the entire West Coast to me is out of bounds for that reason, like Vancouver included. Also, it's super expensive. But like they're waiting for the big one. And some projections say that if they do get the big one within our lifetime, like it will wipe out the entire Western like... Basically, Everything all along the way up to Saskatchewan. Fault. No, I'm talking like multiple provinces and states will be like... Under dire. the water? No, like will be just crumpled into a sheet, like a crumple. Mm, like paper. So so there's this thing underneath... Where's the national park with Old Faithful? Yellowstone. Yellowstone. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so Yellowstone has Old Faithful, which is a geyser that, okay. that geysers hot steam and stuff from the inside of the earth and it okay. releases pressure. But I read about this in National Geographic a few years ago. Old Faithful and the entire Yellowstone Park is actually something called a caldera, which is a martini glass shaped volcano. So think about as big and flat yeah. and shallow. Uh-huh. And that if that caldera ever blew in our lifetime, yeah. we would totally have like a volcanic winter. Ooh. And so there's, it's just a matter of time before the Yellowstone caldera blows. It might not be now. It could be in 10 billion years. Right. But that seismic activity is there. Wow. And 300, within a 300 mile diameter would be covered by 10 inches of ash. Yeah. So everybody within, even if you're not suffering from like the, Vol- the actual winter. lava falling on you, you will like, everything will fail and you'll be covered in ash. And then the volcanic winter can affect the entire the, world. The entire world, the entire country. It'll be like nuclear winter, which is what they, anyway, this took a dark turn, but they, they also say we have like enough nuclear warheads in our collective 
arsenal like stores between Russia and the States at least to cause like a 10 year nuclear winter. Oh yeah. Oh God. <laughs> Shit. Woo, woo, woo. Well, so, I you know, there, but there's a guy out in yeah. San Francisco or mm-hmm. girl, I don't know. I love business. San Francisco, by the way. So they're making these escape pods in the event of a giant tsunami, earthquake, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like a metal sphere. Like you get Star into. Trek? I don't know. I don't watch Star Trek. You get into the <laughs> sphere. <Get out>. <laughs> Leave. <laughs> And, and you can even take your, like, it takes two or there's one for pets too. And so you just like get into the sphere and it's like, you can survive like on the ocean, like plopping around in this sphere, like completely. It's got its own like little atmosphere inside and everything. For how long? Like a limited number of time, but like, you know, a few days. It's enough if like a huge accident occurred, you just hop into your thing with your family and you just seal yourself. You know, out on the West Coast, there's like this whole culture on doomsday prepping and it's, not just doomsday prepping. I mean, they could have many terrible things happen out there. Mm-hmm. Earthquake, tsunami, etc. So even my sister and my brother-in-law, they're very highly educated people. And they're not people who I would think would be like... Conspiracy theorists? Yeah, because that's what it feels like to us. Because here in eastern Ontario, we're pretty safe, actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> from that there's, kind of thing. There's not a lot of things. There's no earthquakes. But they have stuff in the backyard. I think it's like buried or something. They have all the stuff they'd need to survive for a little while. Buried in their backyard? I believe it's like in a hatch kind like of situation. A bunker. But do maybe they, I'm making that up. Maybe it's just bunker? in their storage unit out there. I'd I'm love not sure. to have a bunker. But the thing about bunkers is that they're stationary. Bunker? So I hardly know her. <laughs> <laughs> so if there's a tsunami and you're underground in a bunker, that's not going to help you. Whereas if you're in like a floating escape pod, right? that's pretty cool. Yeah. You could just float Yeah, I'm away. into it. Do you know what I've always wanted? Hot air balloon. No. Okay. A bunker filled with guns, just like... <laughs> wow, I wouldn't have called it. <laughs> just like... Um, from Terminator 2, Sarah... Um, Jones. No. Smith. No. Jo- uh, oh, no, I'm not Jones. Sure Jones. We already said no to Jones. Sarah- <laughs> anyway, Sarah... Starkweather. Whose name I can't remember right now, from Terminator 2. She has this huge store of guns to like fight the war that she knows is coming mm-hmm. and there's a really great scene not that i think guns are the answers and i don't want to kill people um uh-huh. there's this really great scene you've where- had to say that on the podcast before liz <laughs> <I> really uh-huh <laughs> i don't actually think it's cool to kill people <laughs> it's because i like action movies mm-hmm. right yeah <laughs> so where arnold Schwarzenegger and john her son they like open this big hatch in the desert and they go in and there's just this huge arsenal and it's just a fun scene that's all you just want to be badass i just want to be badass you are badass liz yeah you're super badass anyway anyway should we talk about parenting we should um Uh, yeah so you guys you feel like your ice is broken obviously i'm like sweaty so i think mine's broken for sure (laughs) icebreakers icebreakers you sound ready to talk (laughs) i'm a lightweight right oh so So now you're drunk i'm not drunk but i'm like pleasant sleepy cool cool cool. i i say that about you you're very pleasant (laughs) not like easy on the eyes too (laughs) i don't know why i have to talk about how everyone is so good looking on the podcast but they are um did you cover this question in its entirety i wonder because you did talk about it a little bit the first question we have here is what did you cover in your master's and phd yeah so like i can tell you that because no. that's the reason why. Yeah, you have an interesting, all of yours are kind of different, aren't They're they? They're so different. And yeah. that's just like, because I'm all over the place. I have very broad, not deep <laughs> interests. I get bored very easily. <laughs> I'm such a pervert. I'm sorry. Broad, not deep. Broad, not deep. <laughs> we just, all know what she said. Just like the Yellowstone caldera. 
I'm all over the place. Yeah. So when I started doing my masters, it was on Drosophila, which is like fruit flies. Oh. And I did Drosophila neurogenetics. So I basically had these different genetic strains of fruit flies. And like some had a specific protein. It's called a heat shock protein that's supposed to protect you from like exposure to heat. Okay. We all have them. All animal organisms have heat shock. Yeah, they're called heat shock proteins. So they're supposed to protect your body yeah. from heat in different capacities. So we designed these different genetic strains of fruit flies to have different expression of these heat shock proteins. So some of them had more in the muscles. Some of them didn't have any in the muscles. Some of them had it all in the brain and blah, blah, blah. And what we would then do is we would take a little larva and I would cut it up with like micro scissors under a microscope. Would mm-hmm. take out its brain. This is like their miniature. So the fruit fly larva is like a tiny little it's maggot. Like what you see, like crawling around your like Compost. green bin, like yeah. if you're like me and don't take it out quickly enough. So it's like a tiny little maggot. Tiny little maggot. But they're kind of like big, bigger than you would think, given the size of the fruit fly, aren't they? Or am, no, is that, you're no? thinking of like actual fly, of fly larva. Because there's okay. different. Yeah. So if you see something that's bigger than you think, it's probably a fly, like okay. a house fly versus a little fruit fly. Okay. So they're quite small, and it was actually like because I have I have really steady hands. So like for me, it was the surgery part of it was really, really easy. And I really quite enjoyed that. So um, you would cut the brain out of a tiny little, I worm. would literally like we had little clamps. So you would put it on like a little slide and you would put this larva in there suspended in some saline solution. So it could be kept alive. And then we would clamp it open. So you'd cut the midline, pull it apart, clamp it in four sides with these little mini magnetic clamps. And then you would go in and very carefully remove the brain snip it off. And then so you'd have these dangling nerves that would signal to the muscles. And so you would hook on to one of the nerves and then you could apply like little electrical currents to oh. to that nerve. And the nerve would stimulate the muscle and it would make it contract. So you could measure that contraction with another clamp, a little clamp. And so then we would ramp up the temperature. So it would start at like 22 and then we would ramp it up all the way to like 40, 42. <laughs> Liz's dog is making those terrible noises in the background. Of her. She wants to she wants to be with us. That was my whole masters was just cutting up Drosophila and heating them up and seeing when they would fail. Anyway, I just like the technical surgery part of it, but mm-hmm. I didn't in the end I didn't enjoy it. I couldn't imagine spending my life doing this. And so I transitioned from that. So as I was finishing my masters, I had had my first son and she had all her kids in grad school. Yeah. So like literally like two weeks after I started my master's, I had to announce to my supervisor that I was pregnant. Did he cry? He didn't cry. I think he just, he he kind of wrote me off, I think at that point Mm. mentally. And like, he's a, he's an awesome guy. Like I'm friends with him to this point and I photographed him a whole bunch and his family. So I think he just assumed like, you know, with many graduate students who just aren't super into it. But then I was like, I'm going to show him. And I finished that master's in 18 months, which normally took two years. But anyway, so then I was like, towards the end of my master's, like, I really want to study like moms and babies. Like I want to start study parents. I want to study humans. I want to work with human beings. Mm-hmm. So yeah, tell us more about your PhD and what exactly you studied. Okay. So we basically had a study that was out of run out of Hamilton and Montreal. And we had a bunch of moms. So they were not just first time moms. They were just like any person who had just had a baby. And we went into their house a whole bunch of times and recorded them playing with their babies. So we did this like at three months when the babies were three months old, when babies were six months, nine months and 12 months. And then we followed them for like 12 years after that. But so my PhD focused, yeah, it was a longitudinal study, but my PhD focused on the first year. And it was actually, I looked at the six month, the three and six month mark. And so I took all these videos, these recordings of moms playing with their babies and Mm -hmm. they 
were given just the instruction of like, you just do what you normally would do with your baby. And so, you know, some moms would set up a little blanket and with some toys and like a six month old baby is not super mobile yet. So they were just like maybe sometimes reading books or whatever playing. And then I would go through those videos and like code them. We call it coding. So it's just assigning a score based on different rating systems. Like you set up a code beforehand. Yes. And these are like well-established, like the Ainsworth sensitivity scales that I'm using. It's developed by this actually Toronto-based psychologist called Mary Ainsworth, who did a lot of work like all over the world with moms and babies. And she designed these scales that are supposed to capture how sensitive a mom is to her baby which means like how, how quickly does she respond? Does she respond adequately or is she delayed or like does she miss a lot of baby cues? All that kind hmm. of stuff. So is then she it, a bad mother? Well, you don't. <laughs> and that's the first thing my supervisor said, like in this lab, you never use the words good and bad mom. Like we have more objective terms. Like we don't use these kind of she labels. Like, um, these acknowledges judgments. less or she acknowledges yes. more. So you have this. Yeah. So the Ainsworth sensitivity scales have different subscales, availability, and cooperation. So some mothers, for instance, when they're playing with the baby, if the baby does something wrong, like let's say they're stacking a tower of blocks and the right. baby's not quite getting it. Like some moms will take the baby's hand and put it on the tower. Like they'll physically like manipulate the baby's limbs to like show the baby what to do. Right. Other moms are way more hands off and they let the baby make mistakes and whatever. So depending on like the different characteristics of the interaction, we would label her more or less cooperative, more or less available. Right. Sometimes moms would just look away from the baby for a prolonged period of time and the baby might be crying or reaching toward mom and she would miss all those cues. So in that sense, she would be, she would receive a lower score on availability because she's, right. her attention is not on the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and so meanwhile, like I'm coding all these mothers playing with their six month babies. My own daughter so this is my second child now is six months old. So it was like right around the same time as I'm seeing the babies in this video. And all I can think of is like, my own daughter is in the little rocking chair right next to me as I'm coding videos. And I have to rock her with my foot while I'm like busy assigning like sensitivity scales to these other moms. I'm like, I'm a failing parent. Like I'm this horrible person. It was like a recipe for self-doubt and like right. yeah. denigration. Because you were so focused on how available people were and how, that, how much that attention. That became key to me. Mm-hmm. Like I was like already assigning scores to myself. Right. Like, oh, I'm just, I didn't do this and I didn't do that. And I missed a cue there and I didn't say hello to her every time I entered a room. Anyway. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you did during your postdoc? Just like what stuff you studied? Yeah. So I studied a whole bunch of stuff because then... Postdoc, for those not in the know, is like a two-year kind of job that you take after your PhD and you get paid for it and you're like a real employee, but you're not a professor yet or anything. You're just doing research for money. Yes. Is that right? Yep. Pretty much. It's a glorified research assistant position, essentially, but you don't have any admin duties like a professor would. So a a professor, they split their time in three. So a third of your work is administration and a third is research and a third is teaching. Whereas when you're a postdoc, you have a lot of research time. So that's why my supervisor was like, you you know, use your time. This is the most freedom you're going to have in your whole academic career, like as a postdoc. And, it, and it's quite true. So I had so much freedom in the Netherlands, which is where I did my postdoc. We had a sample of 10,000 mothers, which was so much bigger than the Canadian sample that I was used to. So I was like, oh my gosh, with 10,000 moms, like I can study anything. I can post any question because they had collected so much data on these moms and their kids for like 10 years. They had videos and they had behavioral data and questionnaires and depression questionnaires, like everything that you could possibly know. So they'd already Mm -hmm. collected it all. You could just analyze it. Exactly. And that's kind of what I also did for my PhD. Like the RAs were collecting, the research assistants were collecting the videos. It wasn't going into people's homes. It was Mm -hmm. someone else doing the work. And Mm -hmm. I was just looking at it in front of the computer and doing statistical Mm -hmm. analyses Mm -hmm. and all these things. So my postdoc was an extension of that. 
Um, but I started kind of getting into the bed sharing thing because they had a lot of data on whether parents were sleeping with their babies and they had a multi-ethnic cohort. So in Rotterdam, they had like Dutch moms and they had Turkish moms and Moroccan moms. Cause there's some in Rotterdam, there's like a diverse community of like, especially Turkish and Moroccans. So they had a big enough sample that you can actually do some studies to compare the rates of bed sharing between those right. ethnic groups. So that was super cool. And then we started getting into like more bed sharing questions. Like what are, like, are there risks and are there positive effects on things like mother child attachment? Right. So I think that's super interesting. Cause you know, there's always that joke from some movie, I think with Maggie Gyllenhaal where they talk about family bed and it was just these hippies in a movie who all slept in the same bed as their kids. And they called it a family bed. And, and I think in North America where we're kind of prudish and I think that's slipping away, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, but people are like, ugh, you don't sleep with your kids. That's weird. But in reality, you found that like, it's good to sleep with your kids. It's good. It makes them feel like loved and protected, right? Like it's a good thing overall. I mean, that's a really difficult, complex question because it so much depends on your culture and even on your partner's uh, attitude towards bed sharing. So mm-hmm. right. if there's not agreement between the two partners, the, like that the child should sleep in the bed, it could cause a lot of marital tension. From my perspective, I bet with all three. There was never any question, but I'm really careful because I know it's not a choice that for everybody. My colleague with whom we did most of these studies in the Netherlands, she started this research on betcharing with me before she ever had kids. And so she had intended to betcher after we published all these studies. And then she tried it for two, three weeks and she said, I just can't do it. My daughter like makes these noises and I'm like yeah. up half the night and I'm worrying about what she's doing. And I just have to put her in a separate room because I just can't sleep and it's not good for me. So when sleep is very important. Mm-hmm. From my perspective, like I, I never lost pretty much any sleep because I was bed sharing. And so anytime like, and I was breastfeeding. So anytime the, they would wake up, I would just like whip out my boob and they'd be fed and I'd be sleeping like yeah. at the same time. So same. I never really felt <laughs> you like did the same thing. So this, oh, yeah. this whole like parenting, it's like you don't even wake up. It's like this, this whole correlation between lack of sleep. Like when they say, oh, you're going to lose so much sleep, you're going to be a walking zombie. I never actually felt that. So I never felt included in those conversations. And I kind of felt like I was privy to some kind of secret that nobody else had. But then anytime I would, in the early years when I would try to like say, hey, you should try bed sharing, I felt like I was being really preachy or like mm. evangelical about it. And I didn't want to be that person who was like, well, did you know the secret to all your sleep problems is actually in bed sharing? And of course it's not true for every mom child pair. So it's really, really hard to make these statements because what works for one family doesn't work for another family. What are the risks and benefits? Like clearly for the listeners, risks of bed sharing, potential benefits for parent and child with bed sharing. Again, this is super complicated. Like we wrote literally the world's largest review of the literature. And like at the end of it, we could say nothing at all because scientists have to be so careful. (laughs) This is the thing that like when you speak as a scientist, you cannot make a claim that covers everybody. It's just impossible. So depending on the group that you're speaking to, whether they're like culturally used to bed sharing, in that case, there's huge benefits. Okay. What are the benefits? If everyone, if bed sharing is considered normal in a culture, then everybody bed shares and it's not even research. Okay. How about this? What are the widely accepted risks versus widely accepted benefits? Yeah. How about that? Well, people worry about like, rolling over Are you going to roll over on your baby? Is your child going to be obsessed with you in a weird sexual way? Like all sorts of like stupid ideas that people okay. have. So <laughs> let's take them one by one. Are you going to um, kill your kid by rolling over on them? If you are taking fentanyl or other <laughs> like, no, I'm serious. Like, I mean, some people do. Yeah. People. Yeah. No. And this is the risk group, right? Okay. So there are risk groups of parents who shouldn't bed share. And it's not because bed sharing in itself is inherently unsafe. 
it's because any parenting practice that involves copious amounts of drugs is inherently unsafe. And when you involve sleep in that context, like you can hold yourself accountable even less when you're asleep. So if you're like really drugged up, you might roll over on your baby. Or if you're using a waterbed, that's super unsafe. Yeah. Jesus. I've heard that it's a higher risk even having smokers in the bed, that it's a higher smokers risk for in the them bed, to roll over. Particularly though, if not to roll over. No. No, it's so with smokers it's different. So smoking particularly in utero. So if you're pregnant and smoked, you yeah. shouldn't in a bed chair. There's something about the respiratory system of the infants and they don't know the exact mechanism that's more susceptible to cessation of breathing. So b- babies can stop breathing more often or die of SIDS when the parents smoked when they were pregnant. Interesting. There's so much misinformation out there because when my daughter, my first kid, was a little tiny baby, we were hearing that like smokers shouldn't share beds with their babies. Oh, I was None also you shouldn't. You, you like you should minimize that. So there's a researcher in in the UK, Helen Ball, and she runs a whole series of studies, and she has been doing this for like 20 years on bed sharing and risk groups. And the idea is that bed sharing always carries benefits that might outweigh the risks, but you can make bed sharing safer in risk heavy contexts. So like if a mother right. has smoked or if she's really young, so usually like teen smoking mothers are the the highest risk group, and in those cases they provide a little tiny they call it like baby like, in a box so that it's like literally like a plastic box that you can buy at ikea like a storage box yeah and it's open obviously and the baby's just placed in there on a blanket so it can still be in between the parents or next to mom yeah so the mom can hear when it cries when it needs to be fed but that it doesn't get the expired air so when she breathes it she's not breathing directly onto baby which is considered to be the risk factor like a secondhand smoke like a secondhand sort of situation. Also, sort like of? it's right. thought that babies who have differentially or like underdeveloped respiratory systems, maybe because of smoking in utero, they are more prone to like mother's CO2 and all these other things that the mother breathes. And that can like be more detrimental to the baby and cause it to stop breathing during sleep. Yeah. But for other babies, there's been research to show that when they sleep next to their moms in a non-risk context, that their patterns of sleep and breathing are synchronized. So if the mother's in a light phase of sleep, then the baby's also in a light phase of sleep. When the baby's about to wake up, the mother's also about to wake up. And so there's less disturbance of sleep on both. So there's this kind of like the relationship that forms where they're like really in tune physiologically, they're kind of synchronized. They've shown that... um, But that's for people who don't smoke or didn't smoke. The studies are so small because these studies require like you're literally observing mothers and babies sleeping. So you have a video camera on them, sometimes in their home, sometimes in the lab. So it's it's really expensive research. And the studies on this are just not big. So even though there's some early suggestion of this, that sleep patterns and and breathing patterns are synchronized, Mm -hmm. it's not like a big enough sample that you can say for sure like this is true for all people. I remember when a lot of kids I knew were babies, I was still a pretty heavy smoker. And the stuff that I had heard was if you've just had a cigarette or if you smoke in the same coat all the time, like outside, you shouldn't hold babies or be around babies when you've just been smoking. I mean, smoking sucks. Like smoking nicotine is really bad for your... It's poisonous. Yeah. Physiology. And for for a sensitive baby, like a tiny little organism, like that's... We don't know the effects. Mm-hmm. So it could be that it, like, yeah, in some babies, it causes stopping of breathing. We don't know. Yes. Just, so I like never mm-hmm. touched a baby after I had smoked or I would take my jacket off and wash my hands and drink a bunch of water and brush my teeth. Like I do all these things because they said like, don't go near little babies if you have cigarette smoke clinging to your body. That's a, yeah. So that's a known risk factor is smoking, drugs, water beds. Water beds. Um, Worst invention ever. 
you know, and there's population, again, it depends, it could depend on the genes and we don't understand. Like there's, um, indigenous population in and around like Australia, New Zealand, the Maori people, and they have really high rates of bed sharing culturally. They, they tend to sleep with their babies, yeah. but they also, uh, smoke a lot and they, um, also have higher SIDS, like sudden infant death syndrome. And it wasn't really understood. It's, I don't think it's still understood um, why this happened. So their particular high risk group, because they do a lot of bed sharing, but also a lot of smoking. And so they're, they've been kind of like the targets of a lot of interventions trying to, at the same time as promoting their cultural practice of bed sharing, like making them more educated about what's safe, what's not safe. Like you don't, you shouldn't smoke when you're pregnant. It just poses more risks on your baby. But right. by far the biggest risk of SIDS has been from putting your baby to sleep on its tummy, which my kids all were stomach sleepers. I'm a stomach sleeper. But for some babies, for some reason, putting them to sleep on their stomachs causes them to die of SIDS. And that's so rare. Like we're yeah. talking like one in a hundred thousand, ten thousand, but. So when we were kids, that was the norm, right? Like our parents were taught do put kids on their yeah. bellies and not on their backs. And so were the rates of SIDS significantly higher? So yeah, so with the, the implement, yeah, with the implementation of these back, it's called the back to sleep campaign. And they started really pushing this out all across the world. And they have really, really good data in, the, in Norway. After the implementation of the back to sleep campaign, SIDS rates dropped drastically to the point where they were almost negligible. And so now when you look at additional risk factors, it almost makes no sense because, and that's what um, my former colleague, Helen Ball from the UK says, like by over-focusing on the remaining risk factors of SIDS, SIDS is so rare. You're mm -hmm. basically scaring mothers into doing yeah. what for most mothers, this would be really beneficial. Right. So you're you're kind of putting so much emphasis on pathologizing these things that you're actually like depriving mothers and babies of this beautiful bonding experience during sleep, which is like practiced all over the world. And traditionally, like all mammals sleep next to their young. Mm -hmm. Every yeah. single mammalian species sleeps next to their young. It's just that when we shifted away from that, we shifted away into like romantic relationships because, mm -hmm. you know, back in the day, like marriages were more arranged. They were more to do with like finances and like resources and like pairing those up as opposed to like actually being in love with your partner. But then that all shifted. We came up with formula and like all these methods of feeding your bit, your babies away from you. Um, and that kind of shifted the baby away from the marital bed. So the marital bond became the paramount thing, like the most important bond and the parent child relationship was secondary to that. So right. that, that was a shift that happened over the last 200 years. And so bed sharing was then considered like kind of a risk to the marital relationship too. And still some people say that like, you know, I don't want to risk my relationship with my partner if I'm in, like, if I have the baby with us, you know? So for them, that relationship is more important. And again, this is like all individual and each family has mm -hmm. their own likes and dislikes. For me, it was always a little bit absurd. If I'm sleeping with my baby and my partner has to sleep elsewhere, like that's going to be detrimental to him. But two against three, but, one, I but, mean, two against one. <laughs> But a two-week-old baby sleeping yeah, alone yeah. will not yeah. suffer any consequences from being alone. But my partner, who's 40, will. Yeah. Like, that always seemed a little on its head to me. So we've talked about some of the general negatives. What about the positives? Okay. So the Positive. generally held positives were that it... And this is um, a lot of people who are... Maybe we'll talk about this later. The attachment parent folks. There's, like, a community of parents called attachment parents. And they, they carry their babies and they breastfeed their babies and they like bed share. And there's like a cluster of characteristics that you need to have to be an attachment parent. And they seem um, like a bunch of witches. <laughs> so carrying their babies. are they just, are, they're just with their kid all the time. This was like when I was having, when I had my first baby 14, 15 years ago, it, it was more of a fringe. Now it's like 
everybody carries their babies. But back then I was like, if you carried your baby, you really you probably were an attachment parent, like very few right. other mothers would. And so in that community, it, ha- it has always been accepted that if you bed share, you're fostering better attachment to your child. Now, this is qu- totally separate from the literature on parent-child attachment. That's a whole existing thing. It's a concept in science. It's not at all anything to do with attachment parenting. Those two are totally separate. And so I've never studied anything about attachment parenting. I just have experience as a parent. In the world of attachment, parent-child attachment, this is like the parent-child bond. So when you study child attachment, you look at things. There's there's ways you can do this. So you bring in an 18-month-old baby with their primary caregiver, their, their mom usually. So you bring them to the lab. And you do what's called a strange situation test. So what happens is you have a series of like phases of this test. So first the mom and the baby are in this room and there's some toys. This is the experiment room. There's some toys. They play together. And then a stranger comes in, like just an unknown person to the baby comes into the room. It's one of the researchers. They come into the room. The baby's with the mom and with the stranger. And then the mom leaves the room. And so then the baby's like alone with the stranger. Yeah. And the normal response is the baby cries because like it's all alone and the mom has just left and now there's this strange person in the room. Then the stranger leaves, then the mom comes back. So there's a series of like things that happen during the strange situation test. And the researchers are interested in observing all of it, each phase and noting down what the baby does. Yeah. And you can reliably assess the parent-child attachment by noting what happens in the last phase when the parent finally returns. Some babies, the securely attached babies, so what like the quote unquote normal, you know, uh, I guess. um, They have a good relationship with their parents. Like the secure attachment babies would go to their parent because they use that parent as a source of comfort in a time of stress. So as soon as the parent returns into the room, the baby crawls to the parent and cries for a bit and then is soothed because now they're in the parent's arms and then they stop crying after a time. So that's like a securely attached optimal situation. There's also insecurely attached infants who don't do that. And there's a whole kind of range of categories of those. Some babies, the parent returns and the baby is like almost like angry and they crawl away from the mom. <laughs> like they're like, I don't want to see you. You deserted me. Like I'm I am like, pissed. I'm pissed. And, or I don't feel that you're my comfort object. Right. You don't represent a source of comfort for me. So just because you're back in the room doesn't mean anything. I'm stressed and you're not going to help me with that. Right. Because that's the pattern we've established. So this is not just like a one-time thing. So it's representative of what they do in their lives. Of the relationship that has formed through the last 18 months. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So the idea that these attachment parents have is that this attachment is better if you bed chair. But Uh, paradoxically, that had never been tested ever, not once, until we came about and we're like, listen, we've got attachment data on 10,000 kids. We've got bed sharing data. Like, why not just test this? So we did that and we actually um, looked at how frequently we did this only in Dutch moms because that's the only sample that we had attachment data for, for the babies. So we looked at uh, whether they bed shared at two months and at 24 months and how frequently. So some mothers reported bed sharing every day. Mm-hmm. Other mothers reported bed sharing like once or twice a week and other mothers reported never bed sharing. So there was like a kind of a steep gradation we looked at that as a function of later attachment. So if you bed share with your parent at two months, like if you're two months old and you're bed sharing, what happens when you're 18 months old? Are you more or less attached? And on the face of it, like if you kind of break down a very rudimentary groupings, like any bed sharing versus no bed sharing whatsoever, the bed sharing kids are more securely attached at 18 months. 
But then it gets really complicated because when you break down the groups, it's not what you would assume. It's not like the kids that bed share the most often are the most securely attached and the kids that bed share the least often are the least securely attached. And again, that is indicative of cultural practices because for Dutch folks, it's not common to bed share. So you're bed sharing normally in response to something abnormal. You're bed sharing maybe because your kid's sick. So in that right. sense, you are responsive to your child's needs. So, so if you're a responsive parent, the relationship lends itself to your child becoming securely attached. It doesn't mean that you're always bed sharing because culturally you're advised not to, your doctor mm-hmm. would advise you not to, your parents would say, you should never do this. Your baby will become too attached to you or too dependent on you, right. all these things. So it's, I think we've got so many confounding factors that to like untangle them. And this Dutch sample was a nightmare. And so we didn't see like a clean gradation of like the more bed sharing, the more securely attached. So bed sharing aside, I'm just wondering how does a more secure attachment between the parents and the child affect them later in life? Like why do we want this secure attachment? Right. So that's a really good question. The secure attachment in early childhood tends to be stable and tends to carry forward to adult attachment. So there's actually an adult attachment test you can do. It's online. So if you're curious about your own attachment status, you can do it. And that affects how you deal with relationships in life, how you deal with friends, with partners, how it quick you are to trust. It can explain a lot. It can explain a lot and it's <laughs> yeah. not set in stone. So if you're an insecurely attached child, it doesn't mean you're going to be insecurely attached as an adult, but, but there's about like, I think 70 to 80% stability. So if you're one way when you're a child, you tend to be that way when you're an adult. And it doesn't mean that it's inflexible. So if you learn about your patterns of behavior with romantic partners or friends, it's not like you can't change those patterns, but it, it it's just a helpful tool to explain why if patterns got set up in early life where you're like, I can't trust these people. I can't trust the people that love me because they don't actually, they're not actually there for me consistently. Mm-hmm. That can carry with you. That's really fascinating. I'm definitely going to do that test. No, me too. I don't think I slept with my parents because my mom is from England and I think that they just didn't do that. But I, think I feel we like did we for were a while. pretty tight. Yeah, your parents are hippies. Yeah. My mom's not I'm a so curious about this adult attachment. How long is it? Is it like a big? No, there's different forms of it. So I think the online one is just like a, a shortened version, but you mm-hmm. can take the, the real one. There's paid places okay. where you can do the entire I'm, thing. I'm just so curious. <laughs> <laughs> I still sleep with my almost four-year-old son every night, every night. And, but my husband doesn't like sleeping with the kids. And so as a result, I sleep with my husband very little. <laughs> right. Hey, Chris. <laughs> and, and, that, and that can, and that's a real thing in, in North America because it's not an accepted cultural practice yet. Right. And so there's tension between the partners because it's usually the, the fathers or the non-primary caregiver. So we're going to mm-hmm. assume like there's one primary caregiver and the other person is a secondary caregiver. The secondary caregiver is usually the one who has problems with this relationship. And a lot of it is culturally informed. Like they're just have these voices and they're like, we shouldn't be doing this. The kid's going to be messed up in some way. And it's really, it's really perverted, hard. quote it's unquote. Perver- like so many myths, right? In Milwaukee, yeah. where Milwaukee, so, Milwaukee, thank so you. Milwaukee Liz. has like you beat a, me to it. They have a, actually a really kind of a particularly high risk population there, and it. I don't know exactly the details of it, but so Milwaukee Health Department wanted to put out messages about bed sharing to so that they can reduce like these risky what they're considering these risky behaviors because they had this high risk population of mothers who were betraying and they were experiencing elevated rates of SIDS. So they put out these posters and one of them is an infant, like a little baby sleeping next to a butcher's knife in a parental bed. Oh my God. And it says like this <gasps> is what 
bed sharing is. And yeah. then another okay. one has an infant sleeping in a parental bed and the headboard of the bed looks like a tombstone. And it oh. says, for many infants, this was their final resting place. Oh. So when you read things like that, now the paradox with these things or the irony or whatever is that usually it's like the highly educated, low risk parents that will take heed of these things. They're yeah. the ones who stop bed sharing. And they will stop bed sharing. And they're the ones that actually are like super low risk and they would reap actually all the benefits, benefits. and their yeah, children right. would too. But they're the ones that are like, oh no, this is wrong. I shouldn't do it. So it's just like, But you can't say on a poster, hey, low-income people who might be smoking and drinking a lot, don't have your kids sleep in the bed. Hey, rich people, it'll be okay for you. Just don't smoke and (laughs) drink too much. You unfortunately can't. So that's why why this researcher in the UK has really said, like, we're spending so many resources scaring mothers away from what is a very natural and very good thing that they could be doing. And it's so beneficial. And if we actually just were better able to identify risk populations and just speak to them directly and just provide them with other options of safely bed sharing, like this box or like a little bassinet in the bed. Just something that would kind of keep... Create block, a, a block small the, barrier between yeah. like the smoky breath or whatever, or just rolling over when you're on drugs or whatever, but still put the baby next to mom. Bed sharing mothers wake up twice as often and they, if they're breastfeeding, they breastfeed twice as often as non-bed sharing mothers. Even if you place the baby in the same room, they still won't wake up. Oh, like in the same room, but in, in a bassinet next to you or whatever. In a crib, in the corner of the room, the mothers won't wake up. Because they're not right next to them. They're not right next to them. There's some kind of synchrony or like some kind of higher attunement that happens between mom and baby when they're right next to each other. Mm, interesting. Mm. Yeah. I really truly didn't feel like I was waking up a lot, though. It was just like my kid would just find my boob, you and know? I, and I think it's partially And I'd wake up with too, my like, shirt all open and like, you know? <laughs> milk just, everywhere. It just yeah. smells like curdled milk everywhere. Mm. But I think it's also personality and myself. I, I'm very stubborn and I'm kind of, I heed authority a lot, but in some ways I'm like really subversive and I'm just like, I know better. Like I've always been that way since my kids were born. And I think if you don't have that personality, if you tend to be a little bit more insecure in in your parenting practices and look Mm -hmm. to others for help and guidance, it's really easy to like be pressured into doing something that doesn't feel right, but mm-hmm. you're like, well, but you do it because they say the pub- they public say. health says, right? That you're and and to do it's or whatever. with the best intentions because you want the best for your baby. Mm-hmm. You're not like a pig-headed person like I am, just who thinks they know better. Maybe you do. I, I mean, did you guys look at just the benefits of bed sharing in terms of like? the benefit to the child being touched by their mother a lot? Like, is there a correlation between the benefits of skin to skin and the potential benefits of I mean, the, I don't sharing? think those studies exist, unfortunately. <gasps> they so I know. And it's like... But skin to skin is important. Public health skin to advertises skin is super that. Important. I see the ads on the more bus. More and more, yeah. And even like with in NICU, like babies who are born premature, like they really encourage skin to skin now, whereas like 14 years ago, they didn't. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Because I know a woman who is a retired NICU nurse. And she was of the opinion, and it was her common practice to not let parents touch the baby. Because if it's so premature, Mm -hmm. it needs to be left alone in the incubator, because it's you have to like pretend it's still in utero. And then she said, and the parents want to touch them all the time. And they've really got to just cook for a little bit longer, you know, Hmm. But so now the prevailing research is like, if it's a premature baby, it should be held all the time. As much as possible. 
Interesting. And then they're still also trying to hydrate and feed, but like as much as possible, you're trying to hold. And that's really hard for moms to do because if your baby's in the queue and you've got other little babies at home, the mother I just photographed in April, so her baby was born extremely premature and her other two babies were at home, like little kids under three. So it was really difficult for her like to juggle that time. And she was still recovering from a C-section and her husband was away because he's in the military and he didn't even know. And it was just like this extremely challenging situation. They do have um, volunteers at, I don't know if it's at every hospital, but at least at Chio in Ottawa. Where the to hold the babies? Who come and snuggle the babies. <laughs> That's yeah. really sweet. I would love that position. That's I mean, so you probably have to go through. I don't have time right now, but when I'm older. You probably have to go through so many checks. Yeah, I'm sure. Oh my God, it must be insane to be like, I want to be a baby snuggler at the <laughs> sick kids hospital. And they're like, all right. Be prepared to have your life ripped apart by the security <laughs> department. I want to say one thing, just in Chris's defense, which is that the reason he doesn't like having Robin in bed with us or didn't like having Holly in bed with us is because he has a hard time sleeping. Not because he doesn't believe in bed sharing. And you know what? And that goes into like a whole other like cultural, like our society is not set up for like healthy individuals. Nobody's thriving. Nobody's thriving. Yeah. So then you add another, a little person who's Mm -hmm. like challenging your already like lack of sleep, busy, crazy life. And then you wonder why people get stressed. Like it's really like astounding to me. Like we don't have any support. So my friend Marie just posted something the other day that really spoke to me. She posted on Facebook and it was, you don't hate winter. You hate capitalism (laughs) because you have to get up and shovel the driveway and drive to your job at 7.30 in the morning instead of just like hanging out at home in the winter or doing other things. Yeah. I was like, that's Yeah, true. I still have winter. Like, yeah. Sure, I mean, the other stuff too, but also Right. Winter. I mean, it, let's say comfort in the cold aside, you know, people complain so much about the winter and often it's just how difficult it makes their already kind of challenging life. Yeah. But in reality, if they were able to enjoy winter a little bit more, they might like it more. Yeah comfort and temperature aside. No, I totally agree. I think <laughs> everything in life could be so much better if we just had more social supports for people. Oh yeah, totally. Totally. Everything can be broken down to like yeah. a lot. There should be mini- minimum basic income and we should be working six hour days and all sorts of things like that. I mean, in Canada, because I know we have some American listeners in Canada, we have it comparatively pretty good. I mean, people get C-sections and they're back to work in three months. There's no- Oh, in the States. Yeah. yeah. They don't have mat leave there. No. Unless their job gives it to them. Yeah. Which is, but even then it's like three months. Honestly, the only thing that we have it better is in mat leave. That's the only thing. Like the, the number of times a a non-parent or a parent gets a year, like the number of days, vacation days is laughable, but laughable that we have to work for 50 weeks out of every single year. We talk about like the industrial ages as being like some kind of dark time where people are overworked. We are essentially slaves to our jobs. Mm-hmm. We're two two weeks a year is what we have. Like the the standard normal Canadian gets two weeks yeah, a year. It's not enough. Vacation. I agree. We work too much. I think we should get way more vacation, and I think that work days should be like six hours because people get more done and wages and should work just weeks be higher. Should be, yeah. Work weeks should be shorter. Yeah, like four days a week. Four or something. days a week. Yeah, because it's it's kind of insane. Well, how do we make I'm, this happen? I'm a, I'm in complete agreement with you. In the Netherlands, you. as soon as you become a parent, you go to four day work week. Huh. It's like no questions asked. You still get your like just prorated benefits. Like there's no. It's just a. It's part of the system. Yeah, it's insane. I'm in total agreement with you, and I think we should work way less. People would be way happier. And uh, I don't know how to make it happen. How do we make it happen? Everybody? I don't know. I don't know. 
Netherlands, call in. And and the, and the sad thing is that <laughs> the country my, a lot of Netherlands, please let us know. <laughs> the sad thing is that a lot of people in the Netherlands are actually converting more and more to a North American lifestyle, which sucks because they traditionally have five to eight weeks. The, the basic allowance is five weeks of vacation, but most people get eight. Like if they're in any government work, you get eight weeks of vacation paid. You get three to five percent of your yearly salary in May as a holiday bonus. So that funds your holidays. It's just like I can go on and on. But now that they have to compete with uh, our robust workforce, that's, and, we're all and the, and limping the, along and the depressed. irony is that it's <laughs> yeah. not really robust. We're not anymore. We're less efficient than they are because yeah, we're so yeah. overworked, chronically stressed and chronically like we can't focus. We're never we don't ever have time to recharge our batteries. So when we go back to work, we're like not in the zone. We're wasting most of our day like on social media and doing whatever else because it's so tempting. Like it's easy to just mm-hmm. waste hours. I just wanted to share one study about parenting before we veer too far, which has always stuck with me. So there was a study done on the cry it out method, which is like oh, when you oh, sleep training. So much. I just want to say sleep training. I could never do it with my kids. I just fucking couldn't. It's do bad. It. I could. She'll tell you right now. It's bad no, to do. I mean, it. I like, do it. but people who do it, they just put their kids to bed in the room and then they just go to sleep. They do. Okay. So this is what the study was That's all I had to say about that. So this was a three-day study. So there's a lot of limitations. They didn't continue past the three days. So what they did was they took moms and babies. And over the course of three days, they measured, they separated them. So um, basically the the day one of the study was the first night that they'd been separated. So the babies were used to sleeping with mom. And then on the first night of the study, they were no longer sleeping with mom. And so they measured both the behavior, but also the... um, cortisol level so the stress like hormones in the blood of both babies and moms Mm -hmm. so on the first night babies had an elevated cortisol level in their blood which means like heightened stress response and they were also crying a lot so behaviorally they were stressed and physiologically they were stressed inside and outside and the moms the first night also had elevated cortisol levels so they were physiologically stressed from being away from their babies and hearing them crying in the next room. And when you ask them to rate their stress level in a questionnaire, they also rated themselves as being really stressed. So that was the first night. It was like a shit show for everybody. Yeah. Fast forward to the third night. The third night, we've got babies who are quiet. They're not crying. So the cried out worked. The mom, when you ask her on the questionnaire, is she feeling stressed? She says, no, she's feeling fine because the baby's not crying. When you take mom's blood to check for cortisol, her cortisol is low. So she's not physiologically stressed because the baby's not crying and she's not stressed. She's not feeling stressed inside or out. You take the baby's blood, you measure cortisol. Guess what you find? It's still high because the baby learned to not respond because yeah. no one was going to come it's for it. It's still super high. So maybe the kids go so to sleep, but they're all stressed out. So physiologically, they've mounted a stress response, but outwardly, they stay, they're not. They just, just stay silent because they learn their parents aren't going to come for them anymore. Learned How sad is that? Learned helplessness. So that study was like super profound and pivotal for me. And I was already bed chairing at this point. But to me, you can excuse that in any way you can. You can say, well, if they had measured it, it's at day six or seven. Maybe the babies would have had a lowered cortisol. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that the baby was mounting an internal stress response and it was showing nothing externally to me means that they were learning slowly that this is a cruel world and like I don't need to make a peep because I'm just wasting my resources. I know it's so sad. Oh and my God. some might argue and some parents argue that this is just what children need to learn. All right. This is self-soothing. This is a part of growing up. This is a part of becoming more independent. I agree with this whole like becoming more independent. I think it's all age appropriate, right? To me at seven months or whatever the age the kids were at, this is not appropriate to me. An infant at seven months is not manipulative. It's not yeah. trying to be like not independent. 
it actually needs you. And so this is my non-science person coming out. Like I firmly believe that it's better for babies and moms to be kept together as much as possible. And then when they become like, for me, I started feeling in their toddler years, like you start feeling when they're becoming little shits and trying to manipulate you. And you're like, no, I've had enough. You can no longer have the boob whenever you want it just doesn't feel good anymore. Like you just know it's an intuition, right? But what I think what I disagree with is doctors like usually old white men telling us how at what age it's appropriate to separate from your baby based on what they think is right for their development, which like Dr. Spock and all these people throughout the, the years that were like, essentially saying like, this is what's appropriate for a female body. And this is what she should be feeling. And this is what's appropriate for a mother child bond. Like, actually, you don't know. Mm hmm. Should we shift gears? Let's talk about technology and children. Yeah. You know how, so there's lots of like left-wing hippies who, uh, that's what I am basically, but people, she's dirty too. just people in the world, (laughs) barefoot, barefoot and pregnant. Hashtag never. No, I just meant you have barefoot, dirty feet. Oh, right. Yep. And I have dreadlocks. Yeah. A lot of people are saying that technology, like letting kids have screens, letting kids watch TV, letting kids play games, letting kids do any of that stuff is bad. And the question Melody literally wrote on this clipboard is, am I ruining my children's lives by letting them watch TV or Or by by letting them play? Like letting them just have free reign over YouTube kids or to go on the iPad and play game after game, which is something that I'm assuming you're doing. So I do, I I don't do it all the time, but yeah, like I use the, I use screens as a tool enough that I feel guilty about it. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's your take on that? So I'm like now bowing out as a scientist and I'm going to come back in as a like a parent, me, myself with some like obviously strong scientific background. Yes. I think that we're like irrationally obsessed with this new technology being harmful for our children. Yeah. And I think the problems are, if there are any, they're far more deep than just screen time. They're like parental frazzlement and lack of time. And just mm-hmm. like in general, our culture is just so crazy and structured and like kids are so, their days are so guided by like what activities they have to do. They're nonstop. The kids don't have a spare moment. They're, they're like, they go yeah. to school, they go to some yeah. practice, they go There's to another no class. Time. There's no time to just like chill out. Just do nothing. So basically like my own kids have free reign of anything. My youngest son learned how to read on Minecraft. I know parents who like vilify Minecraft, Roblox, all these games that like they're just the spawn of Satan. They shouldn't ever be played. Kids are like, their brains are becoming mush. Like all these non-scientific things. That's not science about the mush, the mush thing. <laughs> the whole, yeah. <laughs> so like all this stuff, it just kind of like, I don't care about it anymore. Back in the day, it used to kind of trigger me because I was like, oh, wow, maybe there's something to that. I know like with my whole being that they're wrong, but like for some reason they're making, they're making me like feel guilty and triggered. And now I just no longer give a shit. Like I'm like, my kids are super tech savvy because they spend so much time. Like my daughter is 11. She's putting together, like she's editing videos. She made this super cool movie last summer that had like multiple actors and like edited it all and put it together. And she knows how to do that way better than I can. But no, like they're to the point where like Julian was editing one of my videos and then I kind of continued editing and maybe over edited a bit. And then Keva, my daughter, who's 11, was like, oh, it's too many jump cuts, mom. Like you did it really sloppily. <laughs> like uh, get me to do it for you next time. I'm like, okay. But they just, this is their language. This is the language that they're growing up in. And to me, rather than like sheltering them and telling them 
all the hidden dangers that lurk on the internet. Kids are not dumb. They're so much smarter than us when it comes to this. And if you just have a frank conversation, like the reason I am worried and tell me if this is irrational, is it because I'm worried that there's going to be strangers talking to you and you're giving your address and they can find you. And as soon as you say that, you, you know, my kids are like, mom, I would never give up my address. Like we're smarter than this, but just have these conversations ongoing with your kids. Don't just shut them out of this whole new world. To me, this is like the new age. And if you're forbidding your children in participating, they're going to be at a dis- severe disadvantage when they become adults because they can't navigate this and they haven't learned in a safe way with your guidance and your encouragement and your support how to do it. It's always been taboo or mm-hmm. forbidden at home. It's kind of like how uh, North Americans um, and drinking, drinking yeah. with Europeans because exactly. Europeans are more like, have a little glass of wine when you're 12 or whatever. Absolutely. Or water down wine when you're six. <laughs> and then people don't binge They're not like the same. Yeah. Bulgarians they- and Russians excluded, but like... <laughs> For the most part, kids, you know, Dutch kids or whatever, like they don't binge drink. They're like, yeah, have a glass of wine. No big deal. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's some people that culturally like do glorify binge drinking, but if you grow up in a culture where your parents are like, have, have a glass of wine, like have a glass of champagne at Christmas, whatever. And we do the same with our kids. Like they're no longer like, it's not this thing. Right. Right. They have to like, you know, try really irresponsibly when they're like 21 or whatever. Oh man, I got so drunk when I was a teenager, stupidly, because I had no idea how to drink. And I drank a Mickey of vodka in half an hour. Well, I did the same. And by the time I was done the Mickey, I wasn't even drunk yet because I drank it so fast. Right. And then I was like, I told one of my friends and I remember him looking at me being like, this isn't going to be good. You're going to burn. It's going to be real bad in a few minutes. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. It tasted like nothing. (laughs) It was so bad. I did the same six pack in a half an hour. It was bad. Oh, bad. gross. That, you're bad. definitely going to barf on yeah. that. No, I was barfing. I was falling yeah. in the mud. And I there feel was like a this lot was, of noodles. This is when, oh, this is oh, when no. you moved to Saskatchewan, isn't it? This was when I was in Saskatchewan. Yeah, There's yeah. not a lot to do in Saskatchewan. Of course, this is when upon Vera's arrival as a teenager to Canada, the Canadian teenagers taught you how to binge drink. Yeah. But I suppose you did live in Bulgaria and England before that, which have a lot of binge drinking. They do, yeah. But my friends in the, the UK were drinking at like 12, 13. Crazy. Okay, I'm going to just bring Sorry. it back for a sec. Technology. Regarding technology, though, and screen time, like through the lens of attachment, if you could put like your scientist hat on just okay. a little askew, like it's yep. there. John it's there. Yeah. <laughs> my concern as a mother... And maybe a lot of this is like basically just from propaganda about like poor mothering (laughs) and making people making you feel guilty. Yeah. But I feel like if I'm giving my kids as much screen time as they want, on the one hand, sometimes they'll wander away and that's good. But I worry like, am I screwing them up because I'm not spending time with them because they're with the TV and I'm off doing other stuff and ignoring them? No. I don't think so. I think this is how it works. If you make sure that your kids are happy while you're taking care of yourself, and that could just be like watching Jenny Jones, if that was on still. Like whatever you want to do in that time when they're watching their screen time, you can be doing anything, having a bath or just like lounging on the couch, eating bonbons, whatever. That leads to better mental health and less stress for you. Your kids come to you at that time and they have a, a need you're less likely to snap. You're less likely to be stressed about it because you're just like chilling out and having a great time and Mm -hmm. not feeling guilty about it. And this is like the key, right? You can't, 
be like indulging in these self-care things while at the same time having these like, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. This is taking time away from my kids. The, mm-hmm. the idea is just to really like convince yourself that this is okay and this is just your downtime. Like, think about what our parents, like my, my parents were smoking a couple packs a day of, you know, and just chatting with their friends of most of my childhood days. And I knew they loved me unconditionally and they did a ton of stuff for us, but mm-hmm. like, they weren't there like hands on, like 30, 40, 24 hours a day. At but, they, all. Yeah. but if you're in needed something and same with my parents, they'd be off like in Absolutely. the kitchen, smoking a cigarette, drinking, what did my, dr- my dad drink? Like Ryan Coke, polishing his military boots. <laughs> if I knew where they were if I needed them. Right. And They're that's just the most the- important thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I think like actually, and this is like maybe not super like science-based because there I don't know if anybody's done any studies on this, but if you're wanting to talk about culturing independence in your children, I don't know why we have it upside down. Like we try to separate our children from ourselves, like for the sleeping component or for early infancy, like mm-hmm. get lots of independence, don't answer their cues, don't carry them, don't hold them, don't pick them up when they cry because we want them to be independent. But then when they're like two or three, there's this overemphasis on replying to their every need. And every time they say, mommy, you have to go, uh-huh, sweetie, what is it? So it's like flipped. Really, flipped. you should be taking care you of them more be... when they're tiny infants. Exactly. And when they're three, you're like, listen, you can do this yourself. Listen, don't interrupt my, like, I, when I was a kid, I knew not to interrupt adult conversation because right. my, like, I, I just interrupted every three seconds if, if I was given free reign. I'd be like, mommy, 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 like. The kid, the <laughs> adults would not put up with that Robin, shit. But yeah. now <laughs> your kids absolutely are allowed to interrupt you. Like I've been on the phone so many times with friends and they're just like, then they'll have like a five minute conversation with their kids. Like, oh. listen, honey, mommy's on the phone. I'm like, no, like that doesn't need to be the way it is. You just don't respond to your fucking kid. I want you to know my version of that is I'm on the phone. Oh yeah. My sister. Right. Why too. can't I have a conversation? Yeah. <laughs> and sorry, I'm only, I, I love Robin. He's a great kid, but he has this like crazy, this is Melody's youngest kid. He has this crazy high pitched voice. Mommy, Mommy, and I have totally been like, whoa, his voice is like really like gets into your mind. It's like really irritating. It's kind of intense. And it goes like higher and higher and he repeats himself until you pay attention to him. Yes, this is his tactic. (laughs) I can't just ignore him on the phone because he will repeat the same thing and it'll get shriller. Screen time. And shriller. Screen time. And louder, but he just says the same thing over and over and over Mm -hmm. and over until you address it. And then he'll stop. But you can't ignore that kid. It's crazy. But I did teach him, which this is a, a trick for my papa, who used to be a Montessori teacher. So he's pretty like savvy. I taught him, if I'm talking, you can come and put your hand on my arm and I'll finish up and give you a turn. And we've been working on that. It's helpful. That's good. Yeah. But I really, I'm, that really hits home to me what you just said about the flipping, how we're so obsessed with training our kids as babies. Yeah. But then helicoptering them older when really you should be with them all the time when they're babies and like giving them independence when they get older. Yeah. That makes so much sense to me. Yeah. Mm. Everything's upside down. But again, these are trends based on people who consider themselves experts, but they're not. And even like the scientific experts, like, like me, I guess. I'm an expert. I've studied parenting for You're an 10 expert. Years. She's an expert, folks. We I finally have... have someone who admits to being an expert. I am Ooh. an expert. I fucking studied parenting for like so much of my adult life. Most of my adult life. I, I love studied that. this. I fucking studied this for I so have, long. I have like, yeah, like a PhD in this thing. And I and my colleagues will tell you the same thing. Like, we don't have any answers. Mm. So who the hell are you to write a book and shame mothers about like this kind of parenting and that kind of parenting? Like, this whole positive parenting that's like just pops up on my Facebook all the time. It drives me nuts because it's essentially like shaming 
anyone who like, do you yell at your children too much? Do you constantly feel like you're upset and negative? Well, yes, there's yes. Every parent's going to relate to that because you overemphasize those times. You don't think of all the freaking millions of times that you answered with a smile because yeah. those get lost. All you yeah, focus yeah. on is those two times that you yelled at your kid because you reached your threshold. Well, guess what? Kids have, and this has been actually formulated as a scientific argument by this researcher, but I don't know who it is. Kids are developing their prefrontal cortex. That's all your like planning and emotion regulation and all this stuff is happening and if it can't happen in a safe environment with your parents, where like you need to know what the limits are. If your parent snaps at you, you know, you know that you've reached a threshold that you shouldn't be pushing anymore. Right. Now, obviously, there's a limit. You shouldn't be like beating on your kids for this. But like, I think there's nothing wrong now after like 14 years of like guilting myself about being a yelling parent. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with snapping at your child. I don't think they're internalizing that they're a shitty little human being. Like I myself didn't. Again, as long as you're not abusive, it all has to do with intent. Like mm-hmm. most mm-hmm. of us are not. And again, the people that are being the hardest on themselves are the mothers who are doing an exceptional job to begin with. And they're the ones that are like reading all these things and feeling like shit about themselves. Right. So it's just upside down. Do you have more on technology? And- no, I don't think so. But I was going to say something, but it flew right out of my head. I was just thinking tweet, tweet. about my mom has my mom has a pretty bad temper, I think. And she would get pretty mad at us when we were kids. My mom once broke my ghetto blaster. Because I broke a whole set of dishes that she got just that week. (laughs) Because I was trying to help clear the table. Do you want to hear the story now? Because I'm already telling it. I was trying to clear the table and I was carrying a giant stack of these handmade plates that she just bartered like at a craft show. And we were pretty poor. So it was like a big deal that she got this thing that she loved. And she said, Melody, that's too much. It's too heavy. And I was like, no, no, I could do it. And then I dropped it and every last one broke. And then she broke my stereo. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. She did eventually buy me another one. Did you, did you get her some more fancy plates? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, shit happens, right? My dad still remembers he, his family was pretty poor. And he remembers the look on his dad's face when he, because, because in the 1960s, not every single goddamn thing in the planet was plastic. Mm-hmm. He broke what? a huge, so, the, so peanut butter came in glass jars. Oh, wow. And he broke a big glass jar of peanut butter, which was expensive and probably was going to be like peanut butter sandwiches all week for lunch or something. Right. And uh, his dad was furious, like, because of the, like, money, because they don't have money and waste. Right. And my dad still remembers that. Now that my kids are older, I think I've chilled out so much more. And I, I realize that there's plenty of research on this to show that older mothers are more patient and more understanding with their kids. And I feel that now because a lot of things that seemed like they were a big deal that made me like angry or like just made me snap back when the kids were little. Now they just like, if I had a child now that age, mm-hmm. I just feel like it's like a non-issue. Like why, why would I care? Um, yeah. My mom it- was 40 when she had me and I don't remember her being like, Ah, she was yeah. just more relaxed. She had a, she showed her temper later in life when I would like do something stupid and she would like lose her shit. <laughs> right. No, but I think it's really important to show your kids that you're just a real person, that you're not like this perfect, like always put, like, yes, I might snap at you. And then yes, I might say sorry for snapping. Like, I think you, that's so much more important because you're and to fight in front of your kids and then to make up in front of your kids. Like, you know, just to show children how to navigate an adult role because adults are not perfect. They're just mm-hmm. like grown up kids. We mm-hmm. mess up all the time. We fight with our partners. We like, 
you know, forget stuff all the time, or we accuse people wrongly of something occasionally, or like we snap when we shouldn't, like we have flaws, we're mm -hmm. not perfect. And mm -hmm. that's okay. And I think it's really healthy for your kids to see that because then they're not likely to be like, Oh, well, my parent was perfect. And I'm not this way. And mm -hmm. meanwhile, they weren't, they were just hiding it all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What are you guys listening to? I am such a boring person when it comes to podcasts and stuff that I listen to, and I listen to the same thing constantly. This week, yeah, all that's changed. Oh. Because I've been listening to an amazing new podcast that I love, and that's rolled into me listening to music, Whoa. which I never listen to. Very rarely. So many of you out there in the world might know what Radiolab is. Do you know what Radiolab is? Do you know what Radiolab is? I've heard of it. It's an NPR podcast and it's like science. It's like a science journalism podcast, but it's not like super sciencey. So the guy, great. it's a great podcast. So the, one of the co-hosts, his name's Jad Ebenrav. Ebenrav, I'm never saying his name right. <laughs> He's from Tennessee originally. He's Lebanese American. His dad's from Lebanon, but he grew up in Tennessee. because That's where his dad got like a teaching position in a hospital. He's a doctor. His dad randomly made friends with Dolly Parton because Dolly Parton's from Tennessee. Jad got the opportunity to like meet and interview Dolly Parton. So he's made a nine part podcast series called Dolly Parton's America. This was Ooh. on CBC. And it's fucking amazing. And I love it. I have always, it's only nine episodes long. So, and he's releasing them slowly. So I've only listened to like six. He's not going to make more than nine. He said, this is a nine episode thing. We're not going over it. I always knew that Dolly Parton was like a nice lady. I always had warm feelings about her. I always thought like she seems nice. And I had heard on the grapevine that like she's a super talented songwriter. She's written songs for dozens of people out there. But this is like totally opened my eyes to how amazing she is. And consequently, I've been listening to only Dolly Parton music. <laughs> and <laughs> okay, it's been yes. real fun. Specifically, some of the songs that they've highlighted in the podcast, My Tennessee Mountain Home, which is like basically Tennessee's state anthem, Light of the Clear Boom Morning, I'm going on the wrong way home. Like, I just, okay. can I go on? Pick a fave. My Tennessee Mountain Home. Okay. I'm going to play it. In a straight back chair on two legs, leaned against the wall. What's the kids playing with June bugs on string? And chase the glowing fireflies when evening shadows fall. In my Tennessee mountain home Life is as peaceful as a baby's side In my Tennessee mountain home I'm like, She's so lovely. She's amazing. And I'm obsessed with Light of the Clear Blue Morning because that's like a power anthem. And they mention it on the podcast. This one woman says that she was going through a hard time in her life and she listened to that song obsessively. And I've also been listening to the Bodyguard soundtrack because Dolly Parton wrote, I Will Always Love You. Right. And she was super excited when Whitney Houston, when they were going to do it for the movie. And it is the, that version, the Whitney Houston version is the top single ever recorded by a woman ever, ever. Ugh, I'm in the she's, deep. Yeah. She's amazing. Yeah. And I, people who talk about seeing her in concert say like, she's just so lovely and she really like chats with the crowd like she seems really genuine and she's very funny 
Oh yeah, you got to listen to this podcast because it makes it, it. I can't even wait. It endorses it all, all of those things. She is this like nice person who everyone loves, and that people when they go to her concerts, it's like a spiritual. They're like she's a secular saint or some. The people go a bit crazy. I'm not like a super fan. Like I don't freak out over people, but she is great, and I've really stan. enjoyed. I'm not a stan. You um, stand her? I do kind of stand her, but I wouldn't stalk her. Oh, a stan is a stalker, but you can stand someone and that's okay? You can stand them. Like it's become part of the the oh, language so now. You can be like, oh, I stand them. I love them. It means like yeah. it's shorthand for I love them. But it comes from the Eminem song where he had a stalker named Stan. Okay. And it's also Good like stalker to know fan. the difference. Stalker fan, Stan. Yeah. Okay. But I've just really enjoyed listening to her music because it was something I'd never really done before. I'd been like, oh yeah, Dolly Parton. I heard she's a virtuoso. Oh, well, move along. Like, I didn't really ever jump in there, but yeah. now I have. Thank you, Google Play. What you I wish here? we had Google Play here to say you're welcome. <laughs> you're I will. Welcome, uh, I will. Yep. I'm going to work that up. I'm going to figure that out. It's going to be in there. You'll see. Hey, Google. Thank you. You're very welcome. Cool. I feel like the the modern day equivalent to Dolly Parton is Cardi B. So I listen. I recently watched Rhythm and Flow. I don't know if you guys watched that show on Netflix. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Do you know that? Uh, so last night we recorded a podcast because we're doubling up this weekend. And last night, Katerina Theodorellos was talking about this show. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's like a, it's like a rap reality uh, rap yes. competition show. And Cardi B's on it. Mm-hmm. And I had never really like seen her too much. Like, and now she's like one of the judges. So so Fritz and the kids always make fun of me because I, I feel like I know what people are truly like just from a very brief like introduction on tv mm-hmm. up there. so i just yeah. feel like i know her true personality and to me she's like the modern day equivalent of dolly parton i just love her do you know what what i don't know why my dog's barking so much i'm sorry um one of my friends called and i told she's a her, bitch <laughs> get it she is a bitch dog. <laughs> one of my friends heard that cardi b this is just an interesting side note yeah had heard about cardi b's alleged past of like drugging and stealing stuff for men and she was like, ugh, human garbage. She's just human garbage. That's the phrase she used. And I was like, it, interestingly, I mean, I don't think she's human garbage. If she's a poor person who was like stealing, I don't know why. Maybe it's just because she's a woman. But I was like, I don't know. She did what she had to do. But if it yeah. was a man doing that, maybe I would have thought differently. I don't know. Is it a double standard? Um, but Cardi B, that's kind of a controversy that she's facing right now, right? Is that like... Yeah, see, I didn't know anything about this, but I just don't care. I just, I saw her on this show, and then since then, I just think she's just, like, the most beautiful. what's amazing is that she's endorsed Bernie Sanders. And so Bernie Sanders, who I follow on Facebook, has these, like, thank you, Cardi B posts (laughs) where she's, like, said something nice about him, and then his social media team reposts them. And it's just, like, Bernie Sanders (laughs) saying thank you, Cardi B. And they've had, like, recorded conversations together where she's uh. endorsing him and stuff. And it really cracks me the fuck up. Not because I don't think it's great, but just Bernie Sanders is just an old man from Brooklyn. Yeah. Thank and you. Cardi, Cardi B. B's newest video is like there. Everybody's fully naked. Like all the models, including her. And it's like, wow, really like out there. Like she's pushing. Well, I mean, boundaries. Which what I is think that is song awesome. called? Oh, I forget. It's like, if you just type in Cardi B on YouTube, it's like the, you just it to you. Google Cardi, Cardi B naked music video. <laughs> <laughs> press yeah i think it's press oh really okay they're making out oh my (laughs) look at those nails (laughs) 
It's like her alter ego because she's so sweet. I feel like she's the sweetest person, and then this is like her alter ego. It's like mm-hmm. badass. Like. Because she was a poor person who had to do sex work to live, I don't care that she drugged men. <laughs> I don't know if that's controversial. She drugged them? That's allegedly she drugged them and stole money. She's had a fucking amazing, very badass. I yeah. think I'm in love with her. Uh, yeah, but watch the show then after because I will. Her, she has like this granny persona kind of like on the show. She's got these nails and she's like ah, and she's always crying and it's like oh, she's just like I'm totally like obsessed. With yeah, her. not obsessed. I don't really get obsessed, but she's so sweet. Like to me, she's just like the modern edgy Dolly Parton, like right, Dolly right. Parton of this generation. Yeah, yeah. No, I, just, I, like, I, I super see. Super powerful. She really knows what she wants. She can like be in a crowd of men and put them all. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know. She's no, that's awesome super cool. Me. And she and Dolly Parton both wear hardcore nails. And they're not afraid to, of like their sexuality and their and their fake boobs. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's all there. I've heard Cardi B talk about oh, how like girls. she got a boob job and then she's like, "Shit, I should have waited till <laughs> after I had kids. So I'm gonna have to get them fixed up." <laughs> <laughs> so is that what you've been listening to? No, not really. I think I just that's a pretty solid one though. No, like in terms of podcasts, like the Armchair Expert, Joe Rogan, like just like chill kind of things liz hates joe rogan yeah she knows we've talked about it yeah before. we have <laughs> um but you said you really like his his great. skill with he's a good interviewer yeah yeah no i just like i think he's actually a good person i think his skill with interviewing people stems from like his underlying empathy for all people right but there is that one time when he said that fat people should stop sitting on the couch and quote stuffing cupcakes in their face and maybe if they tried a little they'd lose weight that turned me off of him a bit. That's not nice. But not a nice thing to say. I could see that he does other things. I mean, to me, he's always going to be the mechanic on wings. <laughs> <That's what> he, <laughs> he was the mechanic on a TV show in the early 90s called Wings. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. I think you told me. Mm-hmm. So whenever I see him, I'm like, oh, the guy from Wings. And now he's like super famous for a lot of other reasons. Yeah. To me, he's the guy from Fear Factor. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> right? But- Oh. Fear Factor was the most disgusting show. No, the they ate a lot of like great. balls. You yeah, should. I like that show. I listen to that a lot. Um, no, no, I'm not slamming your choice. His podcast is very popular. I mean, it's the most popular. What about you, Mel? What are you listening to? I mean, I'm listening to all kinds of stuff. I fell down a really deep Bonnie Raitt hole the other day. Oh. I have something to tell you guys. Do you have Apple Music? Yes. No, but I have Google Music. Specifically Apple Music. You have Apple Music? Yeah. Do you know there's a little word bubble thing that you can tap on when you're listening to a song and it displays all of the lyrics. Oh, that's cool. <gasps> and yeah. as perhaps everybody oh, here Melody knows, I karaoke. love karaoke so much. And Bonnie rates my jam. I'm not saying I'm talented like her, but our range is similar enough that I can like really belt out the Bonnie Raitt song. <laughs> I had a great time, but I came... <laughs> I wanted to tell you about this song that they played for my daughter at school that she came home and then made me play for her. And I was like, this is fucking amazing. So can I show it to you? Yeah. This and, is- and actually, I'm going to show you the video because the video is part of what's so incredible about but it. It reminds me of the... you also sing it afterwards? This? 
No, I could. <laughs> you could sing along. I could sing something to talk about, okay. but I don't know okay. that I want to put it in the podcast. I was trying to sing along to "I Can See the, the Light of the Clear Blue Morning" this morning, and I am a terrible singer. And I was like, "I can't see the light of the clear blue morning. I can't see the light of a brand new day." That's like me trying. Okay, so this is the Black Fly song. It was written by a man who did some, I think, I don't know if he was in Muskoka or where he went, but he wrote this song after spending some time in the bush. Was early in the spring when I decided to go. I love it so much. Work up in the woods in North Ontario. Ontario. And the unemployment officer, they sent me through. Black flies are a nightmare, and I remember Pierre's just like, what the fuck is this? No, I'm I'm enjoying. Are you? Are you though? I just loved it. It's very cute. I loved it. Viara, do you have anything that you would like to promote? So I've got two Instagram accounts that you should follow. Okay. One is my family and personal stuff, which is at Viara Milova. V-I-A-R-A-M-I-L-E-V-A. Well done. Wow. I I can't even do that. Uh, Spelling is confusing. Okay. And then the second one is at Quirky Love Photography. Quirky Love Photography. That's her wedding photography. It's all, the and it's all real good. Woo, and that's where I'm winning all the Q. awards. That's where she's winning all the awards. Q U I R K Y L O V E P H O T O G R A P H Y. Oh my god, you guys are amazing! I got lost so early on. That was really good. I think we found your talent. Oh my god, that way. spelling on mic. <laughs> A lot of money in that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to be rich. Liz, do you want to promote anything? Uh, yeah, my Instagram that I only very rarely update, but I will one day relaunch my website, hopefully over Christmas break. My Instagram is L-I-Z-Z-O-U-S-E. Can you spell it for the Americans? L-I-Z-Z-O-U-S-E. <laughs> <laughs> that felt weird. Yeah. 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 Liz yeah. House. Mel. We're Canadian. We're Canadia. We're Canadian. Uh, what about you, Mel? Um, my website's melodystarkweather.ca. Oh, God, are we spelling everything? No. M-E-L-O-D-Y-S-T-A-R-K-W-E-A-T-H-E-R dot C-A. What I love about your last name, Starkweather, is that it's just spelt the way it sounds. Yes. And it's whether like rain or sun, not whether or not you should do something. Yeah. Like it's stark weather outside. Yeah. Yeah. Like right now, the weather is stark. Yeah. Frightful, maybe. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) George, what do you have to plug? My cat's in here. Yeah, George. He has nothing to plug except his cold, hard stare. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we can bring this guy back on the podcast. He's got nothing to say. (laughs) Uh, You can find the podcast at teachmetigerpodcast.ca or at teachmetigerpodcast on Instagram, Facebook. We're on Patreon at patreon.com slash teachmetigerpodcast. And... If you want to support the show, you could go there and you could give us a couple bucks a month, maybe, and we'd love you forever, but we'll love you if you don't too. That's fine. That's true. But also give us your money, please. I'd like that. 
Yeah. Um, and thanks to our patrons. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much to VR Milova for coming on the show today. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it was a pleasure. Yeah, it was. Was it? Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was. It really was. I just feel like scientific discussions are always like stilted. You did great. Yeah. If did. I, if I, we're giving out awards for scientific speak on podcasts. I'd definitely mm. give you one. And remember, and remember it's, it's a jungle, jungle out there. Teach me, Tiger, how to tease you. Whoa, 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 whoa. Tiger, Tiger, I want to squeeze you. That was amazing. <laughs> it was good.